Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. From the very beginning, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Alex Azar, he's been bullish about a COVID vaccine channeling this, what, me worry, energy. Like back in October, he went on Meet the Press, got grilled about rising coronavirus caseloads, and pushed back by saying, listen, we'll have a vaccine soon. Look, the Pfizer CEO just announced that by the end of November, he thinks they may be submitting an application for a vaccine. Ten months after this pandemic hit our shores, this is incredible historic news, Chuck, that we ought to be celebrating and have a great... Back then, he was hinting that 100 million doses could be available by the end of the year. But within weeks, his numbers had started to change, even though his energy hadn't. Because of President Trump's founding and leadership of Operation Warp Speed, even as we face daunting epidemiological trends around the country, we have reasons for optimism. This is testimony Azar gave on Capitol Hill back before Thanksgiving. By the end of December, we expect to have about 40 million doses of these two vaccines available for distribution, pending FDA authorization. So within a few weeks, an estimated 100 million doses had been slashed to 40 million. And by December, Azar was revising downward again, predicting 20 million doses by the end of the year. Then vaccine distribution began. Now, you heard in those earlier pieces, many governors uh, complaining now that they're about their vaccine allotments being cut back. That's when Azar went on Good Morning America from quarantine to revise his estimates one more time. Can you break through that logjam? Is it going to get fixed? Uh, so there's nothing actually to fix. Uh, there was some uh, misunderstanding from certain of our governors. Uh, so we will have 20 million uh, doses available for vaccination uh, during this month. And great news. Do you hear what Azar did there? He was asked, are we going to have 20 million people vaccinated by the end of the year? And in response, he said, we'll have 20 million doses available. By December 31st, the number of shots that had actually made it into a person It totaled about 3 million. Yeah, it's still off by a factor of quite a bit. I called up Apoorva Mandavili from The New York Times because I wanted someone to explain to me what happened here. I think one thing that happened is we didn't really plan for that last step, you know, the last mile, as people refer to it. Um, What do you mean by that? Well, so, you know, the vaccines have to be shipped out and they're going all over the country. And they're getting to where they need to be stored in an okay way. But once they get there, the plan to get them to people who need it, to actually inject it into people's arms, that's the part that really did not seem to have been figured out at all. Today on the show, 2021 ushered in a lot of cautious optimism when it came to COVID-19. But Apoorva is going to break down the challenges ahead and why a new coronavirus variant makes distributing these vaccines more important than ever. 
I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by SAP. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI will not help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos, but it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia, or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks, or automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. When Aporfa looks at this slow vaccine rollout, the first thing she wants you and me to do is take a deep breath. Because she expected some problems, says we all should have. Oh, God, yes. Yeah, I guess I am an optimist. I think these are starting troubles. You know, these are people sort of being caught with their pants down saying, I I don't know what to do next. Um, But I think they'll figure that out. And I I don't think it'll still be as fast as we need it to be, but it will be faster than it is now. For me, I guess what stands out is, you know, I expected smaller states or states with more limited public health infrastructures to have challenges distributing this vaccine. But then we're seeing complaints about places like New York, which has an incredibly robust public health infrastructure. And, you know, there was an article, I think, in the Times Union, which laid out that basically New York has been practicing to distribute vaccine, you know, with federal grant money um, in an emergency preparedness way for years. And now that we actually have a vaccine to get out there, this group hasn't been activated. It's just bizarre. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are a lot of things that are baffling and that don't really make sense given that we knew vaccines were coming, given that we had months really to think about how exactly this could work. It's not as if, you know, the vaccines came all of a sudden. It's, it's I think, just an issue of people still not understanding how big a problem this is, how intractable it is, how much effort needs to go into figuring out every detail and every step and every single thing that can go wrong. Yeah. I mean, one city council member was tweeting that, you know, we're only vaccinating people during business hours in New York City and not really on weekends, not on holidays, but that because this is a warlike situation, we should be vaccinating 24-7. And it was interesting because I was like, I I hadn't thought about that. (laughs) Maybe someone should be called up to get their vaccination at three in the morning. But I was like, oh, maybe that is the kind of thinking we need to do. I mean, ideally, we'd all have an app or something, right? I mean, you would put in like your your date of birth, your health conditions, et cetera, et cetera. And you'd get a number based on what your risk factors are. And you would be able to see how close you are to being vaccinated. You'd, you'd get a a time and a date and a place to show up and you would go and get your vaccine. I love that idea, like standing in a digital line. Exactly, right? Um, <laughs> it makes so much sense. We have apps. Why can we not do this? And we had time to make an app like this and to get it all figured out. And also, I think right now the right people are not getting it. You know, even where they do have extra doses, there isn't really a good system to figure out, okay, we've vaccinated like the frontline workers and the the nursing homes. Um, and now we have, you know, this extra doses. Let's make sure we get it to people with diabetes or, you know, obesity or whoever is next in the, the line for highest risk. Instead, 
they're being given out word of mouth to you know whomever to whoever has the connections to show up to the right place and get vaccinated and that becomes extremely inequitable it becomes a really an issue of who has connections who has money and who's got you know who knows whom you may have heard these stories about people outside of the priority groups getting access to vaccines sometimes it's a little random like the guy in Washington, D.C., who got the vaccine simply because he showed up at a pharmacy at the right time when they had a little leftover. Sometimes it's less random, like when workers at a New York City children's hospital snuck into a vaccine line simply because they could. It's happening on a massive scale. It's happening at entire university and academic center levels. So we're talking hundreds and thousands of people getting vaccinated ahead of other people who really need it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) My friend was like, yeah, my friend who's a librarian at University of Virginia is getting vaccinated. (laughs) And I was like, huh, I guess you can make the argument that they need to go to work. And is that doesn't seem right, but okay. That's a lot of what's going on. There are a lot of academics and grad students and students who have zero contact with patients who never see anybody with COVID, you know, who are just like the rest of us, in other words, but simply because they are connected to one of these universities or medical centers or hospitals that have access to vaccines, they're cutting in line. I just can't go into a lot of detail about who, what, when, where, because this is a story I'm working on at the moment. But yes, it's happening across the board. It's happening at multiple institutions. And is it just that the vaccines are sort of sitting on a shelf and so the institutions will say, well, we had to get it out there. So, you know, these people were available as a put, and we didn't know about the other people who maybe needed it. I mean, I think that'll be their excuse, but honestly, of course they know about these other people. They're, they have patients. Hmm. <laughs> so um, I think that will be the excuse that we had, we had to use these doses before they go bad. And you may have heard, you know, the, the there are more doses in every vial than there are, uh, you know, than were originally planned for. It's just a sort of um, a quirk of the production process where they always pack a little bit extra. And in this case, in sort of, you know, five doses, sometimes people have had as many as eight doses in a vial. And so you have all these extra doses. And that's great that they want to use that, but there has to be some thought put into where those extra doses go. Some people have advocated for just getting rid of the rules seeing how it's playing out now. Like, okay, we just need to give the vaccine to anyone who wants it at this point. Do you feel like that idea is nuts or kind of makes sense given where we are? That idea would make sense if we had any kind of system that took racial inequities into account, but it doesn't. That idea also doesn't take into account how the virus is spreading through workplaces, multi-generational households, prisons. It's not only an issue of fairness— It's an issue of inoculating the vectors for this disease. I think this is the kind of thing exactly that public health infrastructure was built for, to come up with ways of making this process equitable and efficient. The problem, I think, has been that states have always relied on the federal government. You know, states have a lot of of power, but they have always looked to the federal government for guidance. And one of the things that has happened in this pandemic, not just for this, but for everything, is that states have not received that guidance. So they are scrambling to figure out how to do a lot of things. And what you get is this extremely ad hoc mixture of approaches 
that aren't always based on science or public health guidelines. Hmm. There's another idea that's gained some traction. This public health expert, Ashish Jha, argued in the Washington Post that maybe we should just be giving people one dose of the vaccine. You know, a lot of them require two doses. And if we just give one dose, it'll get us far enough that it will protect more people, more people will have access. And it's become even more important because in the last few weeks, we've seen this new variant of COVID that's more transmissible. I I wonder what you thought when you read that. Ashish Chai is a very smart person, um, but I'm not sure I agree with him here. And that's partly because there are a lot of virologists who know exactly how viral evolution works who think that's a terrible idea. That's because we don't know how effective the vaccine is after one dose, but it's probably less effective. So let's say if the Pfizer vaccine is 95% effective after two doses, we're looking at maybe 85%. But then with this new variant, there's also a particular set of deletions that makes the the new variant a little less susceptible to the vaccines, little you know, a little less um, susceptible to the immune response. So now we're looking at maybe another 10% less, something like that. These are numbers I'm just making up just to give a sense of how the vaccine will be much less effective than the 95% with the two doses. Hmm. In a lab, this is exactly how you actually get a virus to mutate to study it. You put it under selective pressure where it has some repressive force, but not so much that it's completely dead. You see what mutations the virus gains that allow it to survive. So it would be like we are doing that experiment across millions and billions of people and giving the virus free reign to come up with fantastic mutations that allow it to survive longer or transmit better or any number of advantageous mutations it could gain. So I think it's actually an extremely dangerous proposition. Late Monday, the FDA issued a statement essentially agreeing with Aporva's take here, saying there just isn't sufficient evidence for reducing vaccine doses, that it could, in fact, be counterproductive. But Aporva acknowledges all these decisions have trade-offs. Trade-offs we're not going to find out about until after the fact. Trade-offs we are being forced to make, partially because of mismanagement and partially because we're under the gun. That new variant, the one that was detected in the UK, it could supercharge the next coronavirus wave. Absolutely. I mean, it's really a race. We are racing to vaccinate as many people as possible before the virus changes so much that the vaccine is no longer effective. After the break, how the new coronavirus variant raises the stakes on everything we do next. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. In the latest season of Blind Spot from WNYC Studios and the History Channel, 
join host Kai Wright as he travels back to a pivotal moment in the history of this country. Decades before COVID-19, a virus tore through some of our most vulnerable communities while the wider world looked away. Throughout the season, you'll meet people who demanded that they and their illness be seen. Mothers, children, doctors, nurses, nuns, and sex workers, all leading to a woman who literally helped change the definition of AIDS. Blindspot, the plague in the shadows. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk about the new variant, because I feel like it, it kind of snuck in there right before the holidays. Like, if you could just give me a, a basic 101 on the new variant and, like, exactly what it does. Sure. Because I think people get confused about it. Yeah. So, you know, we know that viruses mutate. It's just a very natural process. Every time the virus divides, it could make mistakes. Some of those mistakes will be inconsequential. They won't really change the virus at all in any significant way. And some will give it a disadvantage and therefore will die out. And some will give it an advantage and may catch on. In this case, what happened is that this new variant has 23 mutations that are different from the original variant that was in Wuhan. And what has been somewhat concerning is that this variant is, has 17 mutations that are different from its most recent ancestor. So it was like a leap. It was a huge leap. And it took, yeah, it, it took on a lot of mutations. And we don't know what all of those do yet, but we know that at least one of them has somehow given this virus the, uh, the ability to spread faster. One of the other mutations in this coronavirus variant is one that makes the virus a little bit stronger, better able to hold off our immune systems. It may even make our vaccines less effective. All that means COVID is going to be harder to contain, and more people being infected means more chances for the virus to mutate again. It means that we'll need to be even more careful than we are being now in order to have any chance of stopping it. And I don't think that's likely, right, given how Americans have been reacting to even the restrictions that are being or were being proposed. Well, and given how everyone reacted, like when the UK put in new restrictions because of the variant, you saw that rush of people going to the train station looking to go home for Christmas. And to me, I was just like, yeah, we, we talk about this as an American thing. And certainly this virus was politicized in America in a way that it, it wasn't other places. But that instinct to just protect yourself <laughs> or protect what you think you need versus, you know, lockdown, stay at home. It's strong. And I think one of the things that both countries had in common is leadership that was giving mixed messages that had a very inconsistent set of guidelines. One day the virus is dangerous, the next day it's not. One day we need restrictions, the next day we don't. One day masks are a great thing to wear, the next day the president is maskless. So there's a lot of confusion and people don't know what to believe. I think as the numbers have gone up in the United States, two very strange opposing things have happened. One is that more and more people are aware of somebody who's gotten sick. But at the same time, it's been a year and some people who have been careful have not seen the reward for their good behavior. They haven't seen the virus go away. They haven't seen the restrictions lift in a way that that would make them comfortable to run around. And so they're angry and they're tired 
and don't want to comply anymore. So we're just at this psychologically bad place where people don't want to be under any restrictions, and yet we're facing a much more serious adversary. And we've seen that this new variant, it's popped up in Colorado and California and Florida. So we know it's here, but we just don't know how widely spread it is. I think the best estimates are still that it's just starting because the U.S. has not sequenced that many viral genomes, but we've sequenced enough that people I really respect, like Trevor Bedford at the University of Washington in Seattle, has estimated that it's probably still under 1% of the total cases, maybe around 0.5%. But because this is more transmissible, it'll probably do exactly what it did in the UK, which is quickly become the predominant form. It'll take over and probably by March, it took about three months in the UK and it probably will take about that amount of time here, by March or so, it'll become the predominant variant in the United States. Is there any way to stop that? Because part of part of what stood out to me about your reporting and, and looking at what you were writing here was you talked about how regular lockdowns weren't enough to suppress this variant. And it made me think, oh God, like can we can we even do anything here? Well, it really depends what we mean by lockdown, right? I mean, in the United Kingdom, they had schools open and the schools were not actually using all of the the tools at our disposal, like the kids were not masked. Um, They weren't necessarily doing social distancing within the schools. So that's number one right there could have been a, a big contributor. And I think some of the data are indicating that especially in older kids, that was a big contributor. And also a lot of people still, you know, weren't wearing masks. They were still going out to eat. They were still visiting family. They were still getting together in pubs. And it's similar in the in the U.S. Even when we talk about lockdowns here, what, what are we really talking about? Most states have had indoor dining open. Most states have had weddings and funerals and big parties still go on. And there's still many people who refuse to wear masks regularly. Um, and malls were open and we've had Thanksgiving and Christmas. So we're not really talking about having had any kind of a lockdown that would really stop things. I don't think we've had one since you know the very early days in March. So there is a lot of room for improvement, I guess is what I'm saying. We know what to do to retard the the, the speed with which this virus spreads. And we just have to put those things into actual action, not just talk about them. So how much of all of this can we really expect a new administration, the Biden administration, to start to fix I mean, Joe Biden has said he wants to have 100 million doses of vaccine out there by his 100th day in office. Do you think that's actually even reasonable to expect, given what's happened over the last month? It may be. I mean, I think you said start to fix, and that's really key. They're not going to fix, but they will at least start to fix. The new incoming um, CDC director, Rochelle Walensky, is extremely smart and extremely capable. And I could see that she could ramp up this sequencing effort, for example. And if we do the kinds of precautions, you know, impose the kinds of lockdown type measures that we have to, to buy ourselves a little bit of breathing room, things could improve. If we fix some of these problems with getting the vaccines out to people who need them, things could move a lot faster. 
I don't know if 100 million in 100 days is feasible. It seemed feasible, actually, when we were talking about 20 million by the end of the year. And his claim didn't really seem all that impressive, to be honest, because that is probably about where we would have ended up if things had been going okay. But if we fix all of the issues that are there now, and that's a big if, we could get to something close to that in a few months if, you know, we're really disciplined. What is the most important thing you think to fix first? The very first absolutely critical thing we have to do is get the numbers of infections down. None of this, nothing about this, the new variant, the vaccines, none of this is going to make a difference, even if we get everything else right, if the virus is still spreading the way that it is now. Every single person that the virus infects is a chance for it to pick up new mutations. So we are basically giving the virus so many chances to become more dangerous. And we're also putting such enormous strain on our healthcare system, and it may buckle under in a way that it never recovers from. So I'm not, you know, I, I, when I look at the future, when I look at the next few months, it's hard to imagine a positive scenario emerging unless the numbers go down. So funny, you started this and you were such an optimist and I feel like <laughs> I've made you a pessimist. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> Apoorva Mandavili, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Apoorva Mandavili is a health and science reporter with The New York Times. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Davis Land, Daniel Hewitt, Elena Schwartz, and Mary Wilson. Franny Kelly is helping making all of this work. Alicia Montgomery and Allison Benedict have the fairy dust that make it all hang together in the end. And I'm Mary Harris. You can find me over on Twitter. I'm at Mary's desk. And in the meantime, I'll meet you back here tomorrow. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I'm host of Amicus, Slate's podcast about the law and the U.S. Supreme Court. We are shifting into high gear, coming at you weekly with the context you need to understand the rapidly changing legal landscape. The many trials of Donald J. Trump, judicial ethics, arguments and opinions at SCOTUS. We are tackling the big legal news with clarity and insight every single week. New Amicus episodes every Saturday, wherever you listen.